Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Go ahead and join me in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Brother Bill talked about uh, giving blood a while ago, and I, I'll confess I will give blood if I have to. But when I got married, the worst thing about getting married was having them prick my finger to give the blood test. I had not had a needle stuck in my body since I was probably about four or five years old. And the thought of that just absolutely terrified me, and uh, I had to lay down even for them to prick my finger. Uh, I then was able to avoid such uh, trauma until a few years later when David and I were teaching at Crystal College and I was uh, to take a mission trip to Thailand and uh, I had to have eight shots before we went to Thailand. So I went down to the uh, health clinic where they were giving the shots and uh, the lady said, well, you can sit over here. And I said, you know, it just might be better if I lay down over there. Um, she put a needle in one arm and then another one in the other, broke into a cold sweat, blood pressure dropped. While I'm laying down, 45 minutes later, she says, you know, your blood pressure is still not coming back up. And I said, ma'am, you do not know how traumatic this is for me. And so at least the next time when I went, we got to uh, about 30 minutes. And then the third time and the fourth time, about 15. Of course, then as the Lord would have it, uh, I inherited from my uh, father, probably maybe both my father and my mother, uh, terrible cholesterol. And so like some of you, I take drugs that uh, keep my cholesterol count and blood count where it needs to be. And so I now get pricked uh, on a fairly regular basis. And so I guess if I was called upon to give blood, I could probably survive it without too much trauma as long as you allow me to lay down. Uh, if you don't, I'm going down, so you might as well let me start where I'm going to end up anyway. So just the thought of that, when he brought that, even now, my body is just not feeling very good. But So we're going to get into God's Word where I feel more safe and, and more comforted. So anyway, Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 21 and going through verse 28. Why should Jesus have absolute authority in my life? And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. They were all amazed so that they questioned among them say, themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. All of us who are here tonight have what is called a source of authority. Uh, there's something in your life that determines how you think as well as how you will live. 
And when you look at that particular issue, you really can boil it down to four possibilities as to what is the source of authority in your life that determines how you think and how you live. Uh, one is reason, the other is experience, the third is tradition, and the last is revelation. Uh, many people do live their lives out of an authority of reason. They think. In other words, I'm the kind of person that gathers data. I analyze the data. I consider the facts. And then I do what I do. And I live the way I live because I think this is the right thing to do. This particular approach, of course, dominates uh, the scientific world and even our colleges and universities, at least in theory. Uh, second, though, uh, source is experience. And those who live by experience, which I would say is the vast majority of Americans, do what they do and live the way they live because they feel. Uh, they simply feel in terms of their emotional well-being that this particular course of action will produce the best end results. They, it will bring the most pleasure. It will bring the most personal satisfaction. It will have the best feeling at the end of the day. In many ways, this is rooted sort of in pragmatism. But I do what I do because I feel like this is the right thing to do. Others, though not too many in our day and age, operate out of tradition. Now, many churches operate out of tradition. And those who operate out of the authority of tradition simply say, I do what I do. We think the way we think. We live the way we live because we've always done it this way. After all, it worked in the past, and so it most certainly will probably work today and in the future as well. So we do what we do because this is what we've always done. But a fourth source of authority, and the one that I would hope would be true for me and for you, for all of us here tonight, is that we operate from the source of authority known as revelation. And that is we think the way we think and we live the way we live because God says so. In other words, God's Word has revealed to us the way we ought to think, the way that we ought to live. And so though we do not neglect the fact that reason is going to play a role and tradition is going to play a role and even experience is going to have some impact when everything is said and done, I seek to live my life in radical obedience to the revelation of God in His Word. Now, if you were to come to the seminary and study either in our college or uh, in the graduate school and you were to take a class in systematic theology, we would introduce you to the fact that God has revealed himself in at least two ways. We call one natural revelation, that is creation and conscience, and the other we call special revelation, which is the written word and uh, the living word. Of course, the written word is in a proposition. We call it the Bible. And the living word is in a person, and we call that word, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been well said that one, we love the Bible, but the other, we both love and worship the Lord Jesus. In other words, we love the Bible, but we don't worship the Bible. We're not bibliolaters, no. We love God's Word, but we love and worship the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, one points us to the other. The written Word points us to the living Word. And because He is the very living Word and revelation of God, He has the right to demand in all of our lives complete, total, comprehensive and absolute lordship in every single conceivable area of our lives. Now, of course, it would be fair for us to raise the question, not and ask, why? Uh, yes, because he's God, but could you give me some specifics that would indicate why it is that Jesus Christ should have that kind of authority in my life? And basically, in our passage 
Tonight, we'll see two reasons laid out. One, because of his teachings, and secondly, because of his power over the demonic. So number one, Jesus has the right to have absolute authority in your life, my life, because of his teachings. Verse 21 says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Let me say a word about Capernaum, uh, the Sabbath, and then also the synagogue. Uh, Capernaum was a fishing village. Uh, it will become something of a base of operation for Jesus during his Galilean ministry there in the northern part of Israel that will last about a year and a half. Uh, it was located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Interesting, the Sea of Galilee is not a sea. Uh, it's a lake. It's a freshwater lake, as a matter of fact. And in, in some places, it's even referred to as Lake Kinnereth. And it's also known as the Sea of Tiberias. It's called the Sea of Tiberias because even today, the major city on the Sea of Galilee on the far west is the city of Tiberias. But in the Hebrew, it was called Lake Kinnereth. And the word Kinnereth means harp. And most likely the reason it uh, obtained that name is because the Sea of Galilee, Lake Kinnereth, looks like a, a harp in a broad kind of a way. The lake is uh, fresh water. Uh, the lake was filled, I mean, teeming with fish. It's about seven miles wide and about 13 miles long. And very interestingly, it is located 700 feet below sea level. And uh, it was indeed a very, very prosperous lake in terms of fishing. If you ever have the chance to go there, you will immediately be struck by the absolute beauty of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is going to set up Capernaum, which was most likely the home, by the way, of Peter uh, and also his brother Andrew. In fact, some people even have speculated that when Jesus would actually take residence in a home while he would be in the city, he may have indeed lived in the home of Peter. Peter and Andrew at that particular time. Capernaum means the village of Nahum, named after one of the sons of, um, of Jacob. And it was a very significant port. It was also something of a border town because by the time of Jesus, it's very large. Uh, it is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And also there was a significant Roman presence there in terms of soldiers and also Roman officials. And so it's a great place for Jesus to evangelize. And it is a great place for Jesus to establish something of a base of operation. And so in Mark's gospel, he moves back to the north and immediately things kick into action. The Bible says he goes into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath. Of course, the Sabbath is the Jewish day of worship. Again, uh, it is interesting to note that the day begins at sundown on Friday and it ends on uh, the same on Saturday. And in fact, if you go to Israel today, you do not want to be traveling very much on the Sabbath, especially if you're in Jerusalem. And uh, you really don't want to be in a hotel that has a high rise because what they do is they set the elevator. They used to set it so that it would automatically stop on every single floor. So if you're on the 25th floor, you're going to stop on 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and so on. At least now, the last time I was there, someone had become a little bit uh, savvy, and so they now set the elevators to stop on 3, 5, 7, 9, 11, and you can get off and walk down or walk up, but at least they've cut it in half. But they do not want to work on the Sabbath, and pushing a button they believe would constitute work. And so to this day, they still honor it in a very radical, 
very legalistic way. That is, if you are a practicing Orthodox Jew. And so it begins sundown on Friday. It ends sundown on Saturday. So he's in Capernaum. Uh, it is the Sabbath. It is the day of worship for the Jewish people. And the Bible says he entered into the synagogue. Now, just for a moment, what is a synagogue? Well, we could say it this way. It's analogous uh, to a local church. In other words, it was a building, an assembly hall, an auditorium. It would be maybe nothing this large, but if you think, for example, of taking the far section over there, going to the back of the wall and coming all the way back here, that would not have been unusual for a synagogue, especially a, a one that had been uh, provided with some wealth or some financial backing, to be indeed that large. They would come together, and there the Scriptures would be read, in particular the first five books of Moses, the Torah, the Law, and also, there would be an occasion for them to do other things like community activities and uh, other activities that would be related to the life of the Jewish community. In other words, there was only one temple. And the one temple is located in the city of Jerusalem. But synagogues literally were scattered by the hundreds, maybe even the thousands, throughout the Mediterranean world anywhere there were ten or more Jewish males, 13 years of age, or older. So if you had at least 10 Jewish males, 13 or older, you could constitute and have built there, have formed there a Jewish synagogue. And so they would come together for worship. They would come together for education. They would come together for community gatherings. And most likely, the synagogues were formed following the exile to Babylon as they were preparing them to come back into the land. The temple would not be built until the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Plus, the Jews had been dispersed all over the ancient world. And so the synagogue apparently began to rise. So it's only about 600 years in terms of its length of existence by the time of Jesus. Now, something very interesting happens in this text. He entered into the synagogue, verse 21, and was teaching. Mark tells us nothing about the content of his teaching. In fact, Mark, throughout his 16 chapters, is far more interested in the teacher than he is the teaching. You want to get the teaching of Jesus? Go to Matthew extensive teaching sections of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. But Mark is far more interested in the teacher, who he is, than what he necessarily says. So I would again argue that you probably have the gist of what Jesus was teaching summarized for us there back in verse 15 where it says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. And believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. And so I believe Jesus continued to preach the kingdom of God. He continued to preach the fact that God had arrived in the person of himself. And he called men and women, boys and girls, to repent, turn from their sin, and to believe the gospel. Which, of course, he ultimately embodies the gospel itself. And so he's very interested in his uh, person, not his teaching. And he wants us to focus in on this one who has this authority. In fact, it says there in verse 22 and in light of his teaching in response to his teaching they were astonished for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes that word astonished means alarmed uh, it means taken back in fact some of the books that I read said there's even in that word the idea of fear or alarm one man said his teachings were disturbing 
in their very nature and character. In fact, if we were to kind of paraphrase it today, we would say they were blown away and taken back by his teaching. The Bible says that they were astonished at his teaching. But also, the Bible says his teachings were with authority. Again, verse 22, they were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Immediately, those who hear him teach draw a contrast between Jesus and this other group of individuals that the Bible calls the scribes. Now, it may not be very interesting, although I found it fascinating, but let's just stop for a moment and ask the question, who were, what were the scribes? Well, the scribes were basically religious educators. Uh, I'd hate to say it, but they would be something along the lines of modern-day seminary professors. Uh, they were the uh, religiously trained. They were even viewed as the religious uh, elite. Uh, they received the titles teachers of the law, lawyers, and they were indeed very skilled in the interpretation and exposition of the Hebrew Scriptures, in particular the Torah, the law of Moses. Uh, they were very proud of the fact that they could trace their lineage back to Ezra, the great scribe, and they could see themselves in a long tradition of well-respected religious instructors that go all the way back to this great individual who was noted in the book that bears his name. Eventually, they would be referred to as rabbis, which means teacher, but it was a term of great honor and great respect. I guess, again, by analogy, and it makes me nervous, we would say that they were the doctors. So there's, there's Dr. Lanier here tonight, and there's Dr. Aiken here tonight, and that just indicates that we have gone to school a long time. Doesn't mean we're all that smart, but it does mean we went to school a long time. We've got a number of things hanging on our wall with particular pedigrees up there, and this is what these men were like as well. And so people look to them as experts in terms of the law, and in fact, unlike us, uh, their judgments could be, uh, could be considered binding. And their interpretations absolute in terms of what the law was teaching. In, in fact, Edwards says it this way, and I quote, They combined the office of Torah professor, teacher and moralist, so they were the ethicists, and civil lawyer, but in that order. So think about that. They are the professors of the law. They are the teachers in the synagogues. They are the moralists who teach you how to behave, and they could even function as civil lawyers. He goes on to say, their erudition, their ability to teach and prestige reached legendary proportion by the first century, surpassing on occasions that of the high priest himself. Now, many of the scribes were also Pharisees. A few were also Sadducees, and a few were also priests. And when you look at the uh, Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish Supreme Court, the, the Sanhedrin, the 70, the vast majority of them were scribes. And so what you now need to understand is these men were admired. Uh, these men were greatly respected. They were the religious elite. It was an honor for you to sit under the teaching and the instruction of the scribes, and yet this is fascinating. They are never looked upon in a positive light in any of the Gospels. Now, for you and me to read that, so I know that they're the bad guys. Oh, no, no, in the first century, they were the, like the really super good guys. They were the religious aristocracy. They were the spiritual elite. 
you would be thrilled if your child were to become a scribe, a teacher of the law. And yet in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is almost without exception in conflict with them. In opposition with him, they stand against him at virtually every single turn. And here's what's interesting. Jesus never questions the legitimacy of their office. He never says that having scribes is a bad thing. What he does do, though, is he calls them out for their legalism, for their hypocrisy, and for their pride. In other words, let me say it to you this way. If there's some people out there in the world who think they are just so bad they cannot be saved, these individuals thought they were so good they did not need to be saved. Both are terrible, and I'm not sure which is actually worse, to, to think I'm so bad that I can't be saved. Well, at least I'm then open to the possibility of God's amazing grace being poured out of my life is something I do not understand. But when you think that you're so good... Uh, you are filled with self-righteousness, then I would say that you're probably far closer to hell than the most horrible reprobate out there. This is where they were. They did not think that they needed to be saved. And by the way, that is always a perennial danger. For those of us that were raised in a very steep religious context, we, we can get the mistaken impression that I am so good, I don't need a Savior. I am so good, I don't need to be saved. Well, they immediately recognize something different about the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the scribes. Verse 22 again, he taught as one who has authority, not as the scribes. Verse 27, what is this? A new teaching with authority. You say, what's going on here? Simply this. The scribes received their authority from the traditions of the elders. In other words, what enabled them to teach with authority is to be able to look back and say, well, my teaching follows the teaching of Rabbi X or, or Teacher Y or uh, the Forefather Z. And they would draw from that. It's almost like when many of us write papers and we have to do these things called footnotes and we need to make an argument. And so if you can bring the big dogs into your paper, you know, you're, you're, maybe you're here t uh, tonight and you know that, well, if I can quote Don Carson in a New Testament paper or, or Douglas Moo in a New Testament paper or, or Leon Morris in a New Testament, well, I, I've got a big dog now at my back. Jesus didn't use footnotes. Jesus didn't have a bibliography in terms of who he would bring to the table. He just spoke as one who had authority because he was his own complete authority. In other words, he spoke like one of the prophets. He spoke as one who had the authority that only he needed, the authority of his Father that he received through the anointing of the Holy Spirit back in chapter 1, verse 11. William Lane, now I'm playing the role of the scribe, but then I'm not Jesus, so I can play the role of the scribe and quote somebody. William Lane said it this way, Jesus' word presented with a sovereign authority, which permitted neither debate nor theoretical reflection, confronted the congregation with the absolute claim of God upon their whole person. I like that. Jesus' word presented with sovereign authority, which permitted neither debate nor theoretical reflection. Let's see if I can explain away what he just said. Oh, no, no, no. It confronted the congregation. That means it confronts us 
with the absolute claim of God upon their whole person. Thus, the one who brings the teaching that astonishes has the authority in himself because he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He has the right not only to decide what is true, he has the right to make any demand for any decision in your life or my life. He has the right to be Lord of your life in every way because of his teaching. But then secondly, he also has the right because of his power over demons. Verse 23 immediately introduces us to a situation that requires some questions to be asked and some explanations to be given. Because it says there in verse 23, and immediately, there's that favorite word of Mark, occurs 42 times in his gospel. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. A man with an unclean spirit. Now... Let's imagine that you're reading this for the first time. I think a reasonable question would be, all right, is an unclean spirit the same thing as a demon? And I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, unclean spirits, demons, a word, by the way, that occurs 63 times in the New Testament, is talking about the very same spiritual being. All right, but that then raises another question. Who or what is a demon? And though there is a majority view, there's by no imagination a, a consensus. And so you'll note in your notes tonight, what are demons? Well, some believe, first, that they are the spirits of a pre-Adamic evil race. In other words, God actually made a race of persons uh, before Genesis 1-1. Uh, they were evil and they rebelled and so God wiped them out and then started all over with a new race of human persons in Adam and Eve. And so this pre-Adamic race that God wiped out, their spirits actually constitute what we know as demons or unclean spirits. Secondly, some people just believe that the, the spirits, uh, these demons are the spirits of evil men. In other words, just like some people erroneously think that when a, a precious little baby dies, they, they go to heaven and become an angel. I've heard people say that many, many times. They, they're now a little angel. Well, by the same token, those who are evil, uh, they become demons. Uh, they become evil spirits who may uh, possess an animal, possess a person, you know, haunt a house, all these kind of things out there. And so they are the spirits of, of evil men. Thirdly, some believe they are the product of angels who had relations with women. That is described back in Genesis chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 4. But I think the most uh, likely answer and the most common answer is that demons are fallen angels. Uh, these are they who at one time were in heaven. And these are they who followed Lucifer, who became Satan, and they rebelled against the authority of God, and therefore they now constitute fallen angels, unclean spirits, or demons. Mark kind of has a equal affinity for these two, uh, these, for this phrase or this word. He uses the word unclean spirits 11 times in his gospel. He uses the word demons uh, uh, 13 times in his gospel. Now, what about demons? <clears throat> What can we say that the Bible teaches us concerning their character uh, and their nature? And this is not in your notes. Let me say this first, and then I'll walk you through very quickly the nine things that I think we can say about them. I uh, put it in terms of a comparison, uh, if you want to jot this down somewhere, between God, demons, and humans. All right? A comparison between God, uh, demons, and humans. And here's how I said it, starting backwards. Uh, we have... Some power and knowledge. Uh, 
Demons have more knowledge and power, but only God has all knowledge and power. And I think that's a good way of seeing a contrast between us, demons, and God. We do have, as human beings, some power and some knowledge. Demons, in comparison to us, oh my goodness, they have a lot more power and a lot more knowledge, as we're about to see very clearly. But only God has all power and all knowledge. So in comparison to us, they may be pretty incredible. In comparison to God, they're a bunch of lightweights. Praise God that that is the case. But that's how I think one way you can kind of get at how we relate to them and how they relate to God. All right, then, very quickly, number one, possibly a third of the angels fell with Satan. I think Revelation 12, 4 would at least give us some evidence for arguing that. So a third of all the angelic hosts fell when Satan rebelled against God. Secondly, some, many are free to roam uh, right now. So demons are out there. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if demons were in here. And uh, because no demon, Satan, let's start with the big demon, he cannot be omnipresent because only God is omnipresent. And the fact of the matter is, the odds are that Satan has harassed you or me in your lifetime is very, very small. You say, why would you say that? Because you and I don't matter that much. Sorry to burst your bubble about your own sense of self-worth tonight, but in the grand scheme of things, I just don't think that you're a big problem for Satan. He just sends little demons after you, and they do what needs to be done. No, I suspect that he spends most of his time, I'm talking about Satan now, in Washington, in uh, Beijing, uh, in London, in Berlin. I think he spends most of his time in the strategic places of influence and power in the world today. Thirdly, some will be free to roam during the tribulation. For some reason, the Bible doesn't tell us they're bound right now. But during the final period of time before Christ comes again, they will be released and do unbelievable damage and destruction. Number four, some, according to the Bible, are confined now and never will be allowed to roam again. And most likely... Those are those who had relations with the uh, women that is mentioned back in Genesis chapter 6. Though, again, we cannot be certain of that, but I think that in light of Second Peter 2, 4, and Jude 6 is the best view there. Number five, as I mentioned a moment ago, they are powerful personalities, but they are not omnipotent. Uh, number six, their activity may have increased during the time of Christ and also again in the coming end time, and I tend to believe that to be the case. In other words, when the Son of God entered into the world to do battle with them the first time, their activity increased. And as they uh, anticipate His coming again at the end of the age, once more, their activity will increase. I think you find more demonic activity taking place during the incarnate period of Christ and in the book of Revelation than you do virtually anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, Number uh, seven, they are set up under Satan's control, probably in rank, Possibly in geography. In other words, does Satan have demons organized like a like an army? I think he does. And so there's rank, and there's also geographical distribution as well. Number eight, they have authority and can promote disunity, false doctrine. They can inflict disease, cause mental difficulties, and hinder a Christian in his or her growth. And then number nine, the question that people almost always ask, I am convinced the Bible teaches that demons can harass and even oppress a believer, but they cannot possess a believer. I do not believe a Christian can be demon-possessed. 
And so these are the things I think the Bible teaches us in sort of a systematic way about the personality and the power of demons. And so here's a demon-possessed man in, of all places, a house of worship. Just, just something to think about, that a demon has slid into the place of worship and is causing all sorts of disruption. Now, what I want you to see in this text is how significantly more intelligent demons are than humans when it comes to who it is that is standing there teaching in that temple, because number one, or in that synagogue, because number one, demons do recognize Jesus. Verse 23, and immediately... There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? There's his human name. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Upon seeing Jesus, the demon makes two, uh, asks two questions and makes a statement. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Had you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. In other words, the demon recognizes Jesus in terms of his humanity. You're Jesus of Nazareth. And he also recognizes him in terms of his deity. You are the Holy One of God. Now, note a couple of things in the text if you read it very carefully. Verse 24, what have you to do with us? With us. That may indicate that this man is possessed by a multiplicity of demons. It could also be that the demon singular is speaking for the whole of the demonic realm. And he's saying, look, what are you doing here? Uh, have you come to basically wipe all of us out at this particular moment in time? You'll find out later that they will say, it's not the right time. You say... They know who he is, and they have an idea of how it's all going to end up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Demons don't even need to go to seminary to have a Ph.D. in theology. Their theology is pretty doggone good. In fact, David, help me out. I hardly ever know when a demon gets it wrong in the Gospels. They almost get it right every time, don't they? Now, that doesn't mean they're saved because even the demons believe and tremble, to quote James. But they, they get it right. They know he's the Holy One of God. They will know later and will say later, is this the time that you've come to destroy us? It's not the right time. Well, even here, have you come to destroy us? The idea is, is it now the time that you're going to wipe us out? Indeed, uh, it may not be a question as much as a declaration. And the fact is, they understand far more clearly than do the humans. The humans right now, what are they? They're amazed. They're astonished. Never heard anybody teach like this before. The demons, oh, you're the Holy One of God. And have you come now to destroy us? Is this the decisive moment in history? Uh, is this the, the moment when it all comes to an end and our doom is realized? Now, take note of that title, the Holy One of God. It may be an attempt, as was thought in the ancient Semitic mind, to, to gain some power over Jesus by claiming his name. I think more likely, though, it is simply a recognition of his deity, his sonship, and perhaps a, a significant antithesis that exists between the unholy, unclean spirit and the Holy One of God. Uh, to bring out my point that uh, the demons understand better than do the humans in uh, the, uh, the, the, the Bible, and in particular the Gospels, I note there for your notes there's a striking contrast 
between the superior knowledge and understanding demons have of who Jesus is as opposed to that of humans. You say, in what way? Well, demons say you're the Holy One of God in chapter 1, verse 24. They call Him the Son of God in chapter 3, verse 11. They call Him the Son of the Most High God in chapter 5, verse 7. Humans, on the other hand, call Him Lord, but Lord there may mean nothing more than Sir. They call Him Teacher. They call him son of David, which is a messianic title, and they call him master. But the demons, holy one of God, son of God, son of the most high God, these are all titles that reflect his divine son of God status. Well, it's never a good day for the demons when they go head to head with the son of God. Uh, using a boxing analogy, it's a no contest. It's a knockout in the first round. And so verse 25 says, Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. In other words, the binding of the strong man that is discussed in chapter 3, verse 27, where Jesus says, I've come to bind the strong man, the evil one. It is now beginning at this very moment. You'll notice then secondly that the demons do obey him. Verse 25, the command, immediately Jesus rebuked him, be silent. It's an imperative, a word of command. It means to muzzle it. Be quiet. I know it's not proper, and if our children were here, I wouldn't say this, or I'd get fussed at, but it means shut up. I know granddaddies don't say shut up, and daddies don't say shut up, but Jesus told the demon, shut up. Then he says, come out. Another imperative. Another word of command. And again, if you contrast this with the uh, diviners of the ancient world, it's striking. No spell, no incantation, no, you know, hocus pocus. He just says, shut up, come out, and the demon obeys perfectly. Verse 26, the demon convulsed, number one. He cried out, number two, and he came out, number three. The reaction of the people, verse 27, they're all amazed. The word all is emphatic. And they ask the question, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Even demons must obey him. After all, he is the Holy One of God. He is the Son of God. By the way, I think it's there in your notes. The only other time that phrase, Holy One of God, appears in the Bible is in Judges chapter 16 and verse 17, and it's applied to Samson. And it is interesting that though Samson was not a Nazarite, as is the Lord Jesus, he is from Nazareth, he took a Nazarite vow. And it is interesting to note that in spite of his sin and stupidity, God used him to destroy the evil powers of his day. And so I do think there's at least a foreshadowing in the life of Samson of a greater Holy One of God who would come and destroy for all time death, the kingdom, and the powers of the evil one. Well, when someone does what Jesus has just done, you can't keep it silent. Even though he told the demon to shut up, nobody else will shut up. And the Bible says in verse 28, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. It's as if it was carried by the wind. And people were suddenly hearing the good news of the kingdom everywhere because one who has come that not only has amazing teaching, one has also come who has amazing power even over the demonic. 
And so the disturbance of men and demons by the servant king of God has begun. And indeed, life will never be the same again. Demons are expelled. Broken people are made whole. And by the way, this is just the beginning. Next week, we're going to see that uh, Peter's mother is made whole. And then because of that, everyone comes to see him. And they're all made whole. And then he's going to make whole a leper. And the power of darkness is being dispelled. The kingdom of evil is being broken. And people are being brought into the kingdom and made whole and brand new by this one who is the Holy One of God. As one man said, this is what God's kingdom looks like. This is what the great king can do. Therefore, this is why he should have absolute authority in your life, in my life, indeed, in every life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, the Holy One of God, whose teachings are amazing and astonishing, and whose power controls even that of the demonic. They cannot resist him, that they recognize him, and in recognizing him, they also acknowledge who he is and what he has come to do. Lord, may we then be faithful to uh, live under his lordship, his absolute authority. And may we be quick to tell others who may be broken and beaten and battered and torn down by this evil kingdom that Satan rules over. There is a deliverer who has come. And this deliverer will take you where you are and deliver you and make you brand new through the preaching and through the teaching and through the receiving of his wonderful, glorious gospel. So may we be faithful to tell them of the Jesus, of the King, of the Savior who has come because the life of one who meets him will truly never, ever be the same again. We thank you tonight that all of us, I pray, can testify to the change in our lives the day we committed our hearts and our lives to King Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.